Hello everyone, welcome back to Crop 28. This is Jesse. Obviously, COP is now over now. It's been over for a month at this point, and I'm really happy with how the podcast turned out. I thought it was great. The people that I interviewed were great. It's also cool to see, at least on my feed, I can see where people are listening to listening to it, or at least downloading episodes, and it's all these countries all over around, around the world. So that's really cool. Anyone who listened, I really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, really happy with how things turned out. However, there's still a couple topics that were talked about at COP and that I'm personally interested in that I wanted to have covered on the podcast. So this interview, which I recorded over Zoom, uh, is one of those topics. And to to let you in on the plan, hopefully, so I'm, I did this interview, hoping to do potentially one more interview over Zoom on, again, a topic that I thought was important to include in the podcast, but I just wasn't able to do an interview about while I was at COP. So hopefully this, this interview, one more interview, and then one final episode, just me talking, um, kind of just... One, giving an overview of actually what happened with COP. I'll try to try to summarize some of the negotiations, both maybe just a brief summary of the top line ones and then more specific review of some of the agriculture and food related ones. And then just I'd also like to just give you all um, my personal reflections on the experience uh, going as a student, being there in Dubai, what that was all like and my reflections uh, moving forward. So uh, that's kind of the plan. We'll see how that works out. I'm not sure that other interview will happen, but I'll definitely try to get that personal reflection uh, podcast done sometime in the next couple of weeks. So I hope you enjoy uh, this interview. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Crop 28 podcast. Really excited to be joined today by Nusha Urbencic, who is the CEO at the Changing Markets Foundation. And I attended a number of panels that um, she spoke on at COP. So to get started, Nusha, could you just give me a bit of a quick introduction to yourself uh, and the Changing Markets Foundation, and then we'll get into some more specific questions. Yes, so Changing Markets Foundation was set up in 2015, and our main mission was to expose irresponsible corporate practices. And um, our worldview is that the solutions to many environmental and social challenges do not happen because we would lack those solutions, but because these are not being taken to scale fast enough. Uh, So I have been working at Changing Markets since 2015, when we were kind of established, and I started initially as campaigns director, so kind of overlooking all of our research, media work, and reports that we're publishing and strategies. Um, And our thing is also not just publish reports, like we tend to do a lot of research work and stuff like that, but we do want to see this uh, knowledge that we're putting out there to translate into concrete action by companies. Um, And yeah, I started as CEO in July last year. Great. Thank you. And then to get into kind of the main topic of this interview and a big topic that I was hearing at COP is why is it so important to reduce uh, meat consumption, increase consumption of plant-based foods? Um, Yeah, that's a big kind of elephant in the room when it comes to this COP and several things. As you know, a lot of things were happening around food this year. So uh, some people call this COP28 also a food COP. Um, for the first time, food systems transformation actually made it in the official text. But the big elephant in the room is actually the reduction of animal products, which actually account for the biggest chunk of emissions. Around 60% of food systems emission is coming from animal products. And the whole food system emissions represent one third of global, of global CO2 emissions. 
And um, it also takes a huge amount of land. So over 80% of agricultural land is used to produce animal products. And it's also a huge source of methane emissions, around 32%. So agriculture itself is 40%, but around 80% of that comes actually from animal farming, mostly from cattle farming. Great. Thank you. And can you talk a little bit about methane and why that's such an um, important gas to pay attention to, but also one that um, has potential to for solutions? So methane, we like to talk about it as greenhouse gas on steroids because it's so powerful, but it's also short-lived. So from that perspective, it gives us the best chance to stay under 1.5 degree temperature increase. And scientists like to refer to it as emergency break. So if we rapidly reduce methane emissions, this is a very, very cost-effective thing that we can do. And it will give us more time to reduce CO2 emissions that are less potent, but they stay much longer in the atmosphere. Um, and it's not a replacement for CO2 reductions, of course, but it's just an additional strategy kind of part of it also because we have been procrastinating for so long with rapid cuts in CO2 emissions. And as I mentioned before, agriculture is the largest source of methane emissions, um, especially animal farming. And this is where we see this huge potential. So if we transform food systems away from such high consumption of meat and dairy products, we can reduce methane, we can reduce CO2 emissions, we can reduce land use. And this then gives us space for um, rewilding and reforestation. And at the same time, it also has a huge win for health because um, as has also been mentioned at COP several times, uh, health and climate are also intrinsically linked and nowhere more, I would say, than when it comes to diets, um, because people that overconsume meat and dairy products also suffer from uh, a range of diseases or are more prone to certain uh, things from cancers to heart disease, etc. So this could be a big win-win for climate, uh, health, as well as biodiversity, this type of food system transformation. Great. Thank you. And then as we talk about um, these emissions and environmental impacts from um, animal-based products, can you talk a little bit about how that breaks down? So like, is that um, what part, if you have any idea, like what part of that is coming from beef, what is coming from dairy, chicken, um, maybe where in the world are these um, emissions most concentrated and most happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly happening in countries that have the highest concentration of animals. So, um, for example, the biggest um, share of methane emissions comes from East Asia, but then when you look at it, that, that region is not really a region where people would overconsume meat and dairy products. But uh, if you look at it as the share of countries' methane emissions, uh, we come to countries that actually have huge livestock sectors, huge production of meat and dairy products. For example, New Zealand has uh, over 50% of their emissions come from agriculture, and most of them are methane. European Union, 54% of uh, methane emissions come from agriculture. In Brazil, the share is around 80%. And in the US, it's also around 50%. Um, and these are all countries that actually have both huge domestic production and consumption, but also are export-driven countries when it comes to 
meat production. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, most of methane comes from enteric fermentation. So this is the uh, digestive systems of animals, especially cows, but also uh, goats and sheep. Um, and another part comes from manure management. So that applies also to pigs and chickens, but also a lot of it comes from the cattle sector. Um, and what is really interesting is also because we try to look at it from the perspective of corporate footprint, right? So how much are different big meat and dairy companies responsible for methane emissions? Um, I have to say that it's really difficult to find this data because companies don't report their emissions, even their total CO2 emissions. When it comes to methane, this is even less uh, frequent. We only had before COP, we only had one company that committed to start reporting their methane emissions, and that was dairy company Danone. Um, so we had to um, rely on estimates, and we partnered um, last year, just before COP27, with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, and we launched this report called Emissions Impossible Methane Edition. Um, in that report, we estimated uh, methane emissions for five meats and 10 dairy companies. Um, and the results were pretty mind-blowing. Like these 15 companies were responsible for more methane emissions than the whole of Russia and all of Russian methane. So we know Russia is a huge oil and gas producer. Uh, it has some uh, not very good practices when it comes to that, like flaring and venting. And uh, and still, these 15 companies were responsible for more methane within their supply chain than Russia. Um, if you look at specific companies, for example, the biggest one was JBS uh, that had more methane emissions. JBS is the biggest meat producer in the world uh, with a specific emphasis on beef, and they had higher emissions than four big livestock producing countries. Um, this was followed by Marfrig, another huge Brazilian company that had higher methane emissions than the whole livestock sector of Australia. Um, so you could see that actually this is not really down to individual farmers. These are huge international mega corporations that have uh, a large share of methane in their supply chain. And these companies also have a lot of resources. So they just these 15 companies have more revenue than the annual GDP of Norway. Um, but our research also showed that they're not really investing these resources into, into emissions reductions and especially not into methane emissions reductions. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And another thing I just wanted to quickly touch on was also discussed at COP was the differing, and you, I think you talked about this a bit just now, the differing consumption rates around the world. So like the discussion that many, many of these high uh, meat consumption countries are in the global North. So can you just talk a bit about how, um, the consumption breakdown around the world? Yes, absolutely. So um, it's kind of, the. I, I would say maybe it's not just about um, global north versus global south, but it's also about different um, classes in different countries. So rich people, even in emerging economies and in low-income countries tend to consume more meat and dairy products. Um, and we see that in many countries, as you have this, um, what someone at COP called, it's a really nice way to put it, westernization of diets, right? It's that people are starting to meet, to eat more and more ultra-processed foods, uh, 
more and more unhealthy foods. And part of that is also this um, meat heavy uh, diets, you know, relying on hamburgers, sausages and lots of processed types of meat. Um, but if you look at where we are now, we see that uh, the highest consumption is in the Americas, so US and some Latin American countries. Um, then we have Europe, where people also overconsume meat. Um, our analysis showed um, that if you look at the dietary recommendations, um, Many European countries have those national dietary recommendations, which is kind of, you know, in simple terms, this is what doctors recommend you that healthy diet should look like. And um, they eat 50% more red meat than recommended levels, 25% more dairy. Um, and uh, in other countries, you know, the, the level is like, I don't know, 60% more than, you know, what is recommended. But at the same time, what we also see or what scientists that do this research see that people are under consuming healthy food like legumes, uh, fruit, vegetables, nuts. Um, so this is really about, you know, restructuring and shifting those dietary um, patterns in those countries. Like our study, maybe just to say, you know, our study showed that in European Union, if everyone adopted healthy diet, we would be. So that doesn't mean, you know, stopping to eat meat and dairy it just means what, you know, kind of aligning with medical recommendations. And those recommendations even don't include environmental considerations, uh, you know, in some countries, in some countries they do. But you would be able to cut methane emissions by up to 50%, which is what science says is necessary. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. And then I know um, your organization focuses a lot on greenwashing. So can, and we saw this discussion at COP2. Can you talk a little bit about what greenwashing strategies are used by um, big meat and dairy companies? And also maybe what are some of the narratives present? Like I know there's a narrative about um, like health and meat consumption that what, so what narratives do these companies use as well? Yeah, we launched our report Feeding as Greenwash in March last year. And uh, this report also was accompanied by over 50 examples of greenwashing that we uploaded on our website, greenwash.com. Um, and we're doing this just so people can see, you know, how greenwashing looks in practice so that it's not very kind of theoretical concept. Um, and on our website, we kind of collect... Uh, claims that companies make about products, um, the projects that they have, and also the ads that they are publishing. Um, and by projects, I mean things like, you know, voluntary initiatives that sometimes they get together with lots of other companies and they do something really weak. But, you know, it's kind of good to get headlines in the press that something is happening. Products is something that greenwashing is most focused on, but, um we also looked at things such as, you know, net zero targets and claims because this very often is featured um, sometimes even on products, but sometimes on the websites where, you know, people kind of come to get more information about the company. And it's kind of part of this, you know, general green aura that company tries to ha have. Um, and um, in terms of content of greenwashing, what we found surprisingly for me was that over 80% of claims were actually around climate. Um, so we found carbon neutral milk, uh, climate neutral products, uh, climate positive 
products or, you know, products that have uh, negative emissions. And um, most of these claims were actually based on offsetting. So offsetting means that companies are investing in projects somewhere else. They're not actually doing, in most cases, they're not doing anything to reduce the emissions within their own supply chains. Um, and sometimes we found, you know, that they had like, a little bit of reductions um, within their supply chain, but you know, majority of what the claim was about was about offsetting. Um, we also found things like even government-sponsored weak certification schemes, like low-carbon beef. Um, this one is, for example, approved by USDA, but it only requires ten percent reduction in emissions compared to the baseline that is set above U.S. average. Um, and this is really kind of problematic that the government is actually happy to support this kind of greenwashing. Um, and then the other 20% was kind of um, more subtle greenwashing. And a lot of it was about uh, natural eating claims. So this is kind of, you know, the meat is essential part of healthy diets and meat products are natural. They are produced uh, um mostly by cows grazing outside. Um, and some of the companies that make these claims were actually proven to not have any cows outside, but most of their dairy coming from, you know, feedlot type of systems. Uh, therefore, it's really misleading. Um, a lot of greenwashing, subtle greenwashing was also showing this happy animals. It was like having, you know, green packaging and um, and stuff like that. And um and yeah, these things are all something that regulators will now be scrutinizing, right? So it's not just big claims, big false claims, but also like subtle hints on the products that it's somehow greener, natural, better. Um, and yeah, a lot of these vague claims are now under scrutiny. Okay, thank you. And then another thing I'm curious about is some of the new technologies that are emerging in the plant-based food movement. So maybe plant-based meat, stuff like that. That was there. I saw there were a couple of events around that at COP. Um, what is your opinion on those? And how do you see those maybe playing a role in this transition to more plant-based diets? I find this type of innovation in the food system very interesting. And the reason is because I believe that... Um, the biggest problem when it comes to sustainability in food is actually the use of land and the fact that, you know, animals emit a lot of uh, methane and um, the plant-based products have the potential to kind of uh, overcome this, but also offer people an easy and um, convenient kind of food, right? Because I think... A big problem is also the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't know how to cook and uh, they cannot, you know, create very sophisticated types of food, even for time or money constraints, right? But alternative protein could be represent a way around it. And it could also be a solution for food companies, right? Because let's face it, similar to electric cars, electric cars is actually something that is saving the car industry because, in the world where we have to reduce emissions, you need a way out. Um, and um, it is kind of interesting that at COP, a lot more attention in the mainstream discussions were actually was actually going to the techno fixes, right? How can we make farming more efficient? How can we make animals um, emit less of methane or less CO2 and things like that? 
but very little is like about or changing the diet of cows, right? The feed that we give to cows and much less attention was going, like change what we feed people, right? Which I think has a lot more potential and a lot more um, emissions reduction potential as well. Yeah, thank you. Something else uh, I've been reading about a bit is like that oftentimes plants uh, and veg fruits and vegetables can also take quite amount of uh, fossil fuels, fertilizers, water uh, to produce like uh, especially the water and then also transporting these to regions where they wouldn't grow normally. So um, as we make this transition towards more plant based diets, um, how can we also reduce uh, the amount of fossil fuels that's used to uh, grow plants and fruits and vegetables? Yeah, I think we should really, I mean, we should look at it from, you know, holistic perspective and we should still kind of acknowledge that, you know, a lot of crops that are produced in such way are actually used to feed animals. You know, let's look at soy. 80% of soy is actually used for animal feed and very little of this actually goes into uh, plant-based products. Um, and if we did shift that, you know, to kind of feed people directly, we could use much less agricultural land, which then has much less um, emissions from fertilizers and things like that. But I totally agree with you. We should still ensure that, you know, plant-based products are produced in an environmentally friendly way. Um, and, you know, we're also not talking about complete shift away from animals either. Like most people are not talking about that. So, it is interesting to look at agroecology, regenerative practices, and um, organic farming as well. Um, and these are all the things that you know could really use a lot more research, um, a lot more investments, and um, and yeah, it's really something to watch. Unfortunately, the FAO roadmap that everyone was waiting for didn't really kind of mention agroecology. Um, but I do think this is a really kind of, um, you know, promising um, principles, set of principles that can be applied across the world. Great. Thank you. Just two more last questions. Another thing I was noticing at COP at a couple of the events uh, in the audience, there were some at different events, pastoralists from Africa, especially, and they were asking, um, like, is this conversation about reducing meat consumption uh, threatening their livelihoods? And so how do you see that kind of debate and uh, maybe some nuance between the different kinds of um, animal based production? I think it's not contradicting their livelihoods. I think the big meat, um, industrialized meat production that, you know, is used to, um, it's mostly used in the global north, right? This is what um, most people working in this space are trying to kind of reduce and reform. Um, and pastoralist farmers, like the way I see it is if we don't reduce and reform those types of agriculture, which is a major driver of climate change, the, in the, the pastoralist farmers will be the most impacted, right? Because they don't really have the resources uh, to invest into um, into different farming practices, right? They have been doing the same farming practices for a really long time. And what climate science shows us that as climate change intensifies, there will be crop, there will be failures of feed production, you know, which will impact those regions as well. And it is likely that uh, animals that will be suffering from heat shocks and heat waves will have to be moved indoors, right? 
And this is something we are trying to prevent with emissions reductions and kind of, um, how do you call that? Like um, planned transformation of the food system, right? Because we know with the, the more climate change intensifies and the more temperatures increase, there will have to be transformation as well. But that transformation will be more chaotic. It will negatively impact the most vulnerable. And some of the most vulnerable are those pastoralist farmers that do not have other options. Yeah, thank you. And then just the last question, um, what is your overall reaction to some of the agreements that came out of COP? So you can take one of these, um, some of the things I was thinking about was that main big uh, declaration on sustainable agriculture. You mentioned the FAO roadmap, which I believe was calling for a 25% reduction in emissions by 2030. Also, there were some different companies that made agreements to reduce methane, um, the global stock take, which didn't include the food system terminology, just any of those or overall, what were some of your reactions to the official um, agreements and negotiations at COP? Things are moving in the right direction, but probably a bit too slowly. Um, we now see that I mean, if you take all these declarations together, um, methane, food system transformation, uh, climate and health, um, all these things now have to be made part of NDCs, either for next year or for the year after. So NDCs is about uh, national action. So what countries do when they leave COP, when they start designing their domestic policies. And this is actually where the real work starts, um, because COP is actually more about the direction of travel. It is a little bit about all these announcements. Um, but for me, the direction of travel is clear. What we need now is like really decisive action at the national level. We need regulation on these companies that I was mentioning before. And some of them have started doing things voluntarily. I mentioned Danone. So DEMA, the Dairy Methane Action Alliance, now has six companies in the dairy sector. We also have Upfield, which is a plant-based company that has committed to report methane emissions. So we see the start of that. What we need now is regulation forcing the others to act. And we also need investments and we need kind of, um, yeah, support farmers, of course, but we also need to kind of get these companies to invest in emissions reductions.